You're listening to a special bonus episode of The Close-Up. Today we're remembering legendary filmmaker Michael Cimino, who passed away last week at the age of 77. The director broke through with his 1978 Oscar winner, The Deer Hunter, which embodied the style and ethos of the new Hollywood movement that produced epics like The Godfather and Chinatown before it. Cimino's follow-up was Heaven's Gate, an ambitious take on the Western starring Chris Christopherson as a federal marshal investigating a government-sanctioned plot to steal land from European settlers in Wyoming. The film is widely known to be one of the biggest box office flops in history, effectively ending the New Hollywood era and causing United Artists to go under. In the years since, however, the film has been largely reappraised, with many calling it an underappreciated modern masterpiece. In 2012, at the 50th New York Film Festival, we screened a restored director's cut, offering a rare opportunity to see Chimino's original vision on the big screen. After the screening, the then 73-year-old director joined Chris Christopherson on stage for a Q&A. Let's go to that now. Um, Hello, New York. <laughs> Where to begin? Um, I wanted to start, Michael, just by Hello. asking you a little bit about how you first discovered this this bit of history about the Johnson County War and and decided that this was a subject for a film. It's uh, difficult to be rational at this moment. Uh, <clears throat> it's taken 33 years to get here. <laughs> so I'm, I'm too full of conflicting emotions to be analytical and clear and film-savvy person. I'm only grateful I had this person sitting next to me who's a poet with genius. And we were on tour for a year, went to spring, summer, and fall. And I was happy with all the time we spent together. And I'm especially happy that he's here tonight to hear finally applause for his work. I wish all of the actors, including all of the extras, could be here. There's no room. Yeah, to, to hear your applause, because they all work so terribly hard, and we're committed. And as you can see, uh, everyone was an individual, uh, and everybody gave everything they could give more than anybody. And over these 33 years, there were times 
in all candor that I must admit I wavered. This guy never did. Never, ever. And neither did the producer, Joanna Corelli. Two very special people with a very special attachment and feeling for this, I can't even say movie, it was more than a movie. I don't know what it was. It was, uh, it was like a long poem. <laughs> well, we know yeah. you can read. <laughs> and, and Michael, you hadn't seen the film in, in many, many years when you sat down to work on this restoration. Is that correct? No, I mean, I, the film obviously had been shown in various places in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I went to simply present it, and then I got out of the theater, I couldn't bear to see it. And uh, so, the, it, so when Joanne approached me uh, and uh, Peter Becker from Criterion, uh, my first response was, no way. There's no way I'm revisiting all that. It's too much. I, I just couldn't, I didn't think I could handle it emotionally. And uh, I said to Chris, it was like the thought of revisiting Golgotha. <laughs> it's kind of a weird experience. But uh, uh, Joanne and Peter together, Criterion, persisted for 10 years, 10 whole years over these last 30 years to get permission from MGM to finally allow this to happen. And uh, Joanne has a way of making you say yes while you're saying no. <laughs> I guess it's a, a talent women have uniquely. <laughs> but, um, so I kept saying no, she kept saying yes, and Peter kept saying yes. And one day um, in Hollywood or LA, I found myself right next to my old office at MGM, which is now Sony, uh, just across the street. I had an office in the Clark Gable building, which mercifully has been preserved. And it was the street that we used to audition the horses on, <laughs> the, the beautiful stallion that pulls that. Uh, Chris comes in with uh, the buggy. And I remember bringing all these little black stallions up and down that street. So going back there was like going back to high school. And, uh, and I was really scared shit. Um, uh, but the people at Sony were so nice and so polite and so generous and so caring. Uh, they even gave me a parking spot within view of my old office. <laughs> and uh, they were so enthusiastic that the minute I sat down at the editing console, something else in me took over and my hands began to work. 
and my brain began to work. And uh, before I knew it, I was working on this restoration, which I swore I would not do. <laughs> I didn't want to revisit it. But then the re a mic on your face. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to the director. Yeah. <laughs> so I need a director. And uh, and the more the more I worked on it, the more passionate I got about it. And uh, and the more I worked on it, uh, the more I became absolutely blown away by the commitment of people like Chris and Chris Walker and Isabel Huppert, uh, all of the actors, uh, the intensity that they brought to every moment that they were on film and off film. Uh, uh, I owe a great debt to them because they dedicated the better part of a, a year to this enterprise. And uh, when we first showed it, of course, in New York, it was like we all got guillotined at the same time. And I was always especially upset at the fact that the actor's work was never recognized. You know, I felt for some reason I was singled out uh, and it was beside the story. Uh, uh, it was beside the acting. Nobody talked about the reality of the story. Nobody talked about was it really a part of American history, which it was. And, uh, and nobody talked about performance. And when you have a cast of this size uh, on a movie of this size over a period of time, it's not easy for actors to sustain their energy and their, their passion. Uh, in fact, it was a funny moment, which I'll I don't know if Chris is even aware of it, but he was going through a hard time at one point in his life while we were shooting. And I remember going up to his trailer. It was freezing cold in Montana. And uh, I knocked on the door, and I was standing on these little rickety steps of this aluminum trailer. And uh, he opened the door. but the screen door stayed shut. He just looked at me, and before I said a word, he said, it's getting cold in here. So I closed the door, and I later took that line and I gave it to Chris Walker. Well, <laughs> 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 <Right. laughs> At that time when I was breaking up over a over a personal family heartbreak. Yeah. He told me, use it. Yeah. Apparently, he was using everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> and the great thing was they went with it, and they did use it. And uh, we all turned ourselves inside out for you, and we're just really, really happy that uh, you finally got it. This is the first time I, well, I saw it in Venice. 
for the first time a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And, uh, and we got a standing ovation, which was wonderful. And uh, I was still very nervous of coming here tonight because this was the scene of the crime. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what, what was going to happen. And uh, so my stomach has been in a knot all day long. I think it's now finally unraveling. But, uh, yes, it is a, a true event in American history. It's... Uh, you know, one hopes that the audience can just relax, forget all the nonsense that's been written and said about it, and just lay back, sink into the tempo of the late 19th century, and witness a true episode in the pageant of American history. And, uh, and that's what I feel has happened tonight. I'm very, very pleased about it. Listen. I, I, I'm so glad that I got to see it tonight because I hadn't seen it for years. But I always felt that it was a, a beautiful portrayal of a real ugly part of American history. It was a true story. Except at the end, they hung me and I love in real life. <laughs> and uh, but the ending of this works better for my my feeling that Michael <laughs> was doing a American history in this in this film, and and the last part on the yacht was post Vietnam America, and you could see it on the on my face there, yeah. and it was. To me, uh, it, w it was a neat experience to sit here and watch it tonight because, because it's everything I hoped that it would be. It was, it was catastrophe for both of our careers. <laughs> we, both, we both ended up in the dust. But, uh, but, but I must say... But it was worth it. Wherever, wherever I went with this guy to see him perform... Uh, he would always take time out to make an introduction. And I felt a little bit like a leper being introduced <laughs> to a bunch of healthy people. <laughs> and, uh, but a he leopard or a leper? <laughs> take your pick. <laughs> uh, a, a leopard with leprosy. <laughs> but he and Joanne, there was never a moment of doubt. I went to the doubt of the damned, <laughs> and uh, had to find my way back. And, uh, and being here tonight is part of it. Uh, uh, it's very emotional. It's very hard to talk about it in a rational way. Uh, I was just happy to be a part of working with this uh, poet of genius. And, uh, and I mean that in a very real way. Uh, he didn't just act, he inhabited the part. He just, uh, uh, 
he just became James Avril. And that was it. Uh, I don't even remember any special rehearsals. He was just James Avril. <laughs> and uh, once we put him in the, in the sets, uh, every, he, he just picked up on every detail. Everything was alive to him. And uh, it just became the performance. It became part of the performance. Yeah, Chris, can you talk a little bit Velmo about Velmo Zygmunt told me, Velmo Zygmunt is one of my heroes as well. He was the cinematographer in this film. And they told me near the, <laughs> near the, near the end of this, he said, I think Michael's fallen in love with this picture. And, uh, and that can be a dangerous business, falling in love with anything <laughs> over which other people have control. Exactly. And, uh, but but I, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm so knocked out to see it again tonight and find that, that it lived up to your imagination, Michael. And I'm proud to be part of it. Well, I, I'm so pleased, so pleased you could be here and hear applause. <laughs> <laughs> After 33 years. Well, you know, thank you. You know, 33 years, it's ironic that every time I said I was 33 when I was down in Peru at the time, they would tell me 33 is the age of Christ. <laughs> it's a magic number. Chris, can you just uh, give us a little idea of sort of what it was like being on the set shooting every day for that almost one year? Because the film is so intoxicating. It's, you know, everywhere the camera turns is this world. Uh, you never have the feeling of a period recreation, per se. You're just, you're, you're living it as the audience. And I'm just wondering if that's that was exact, sort of the feeling being I, there. I think that's exactly what everybody was doing up there. To me, it was it was uh, uh, an expression of of how if I was feeling deep in my soul, and I felt the same watching Chris walking tonight. It just it just really blew me away the way he inhabited that character, and he and and all of, all of the actors were were so good. And uh, we've got to blame it on the man here. He uh, put it all together and had the imagination to create this, this beautiful piece. And you'll probably never get paid back for all those 33 years. But, uh, but uh, somewhere up there well, likes you. Well, I did you. get paid back tonight, two weeks ago in Venice. And having you finally hear applause for your performance. <laughs> That's a long time to wait for applause. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, I know when we've talked about the movie before, you've talked about having to really fight to cast Isabelle Huppert in the film, and this was her first American picture. Uh, oh, yeah, the I, studio absolutely did not want her. She was perfect. And they did everything they could to break my arm. 
break my legs. <laughs> Tortured me to give her up. And I said, no. Just kept saying, no, no. She's the girl. Do you, do you remember what you had seen her in or, or you know, how you got the idea to, to, to put her in the film? Yeah. Uh, Joanne and I were casting. Uh, I think we are at the William Morris office in New York City. And Joanne, tell me if I'm wrong. And we were looking at actresses, a lot of actresses. And I had looked at a lot of actresses in L.A. as well. And uh, one day, uh, you know, casting is a very exhausting process because you try to give an actor more time than just read a line. Thank you very much. Yeah. You, you try to spend time with them. And when you do, unfortunately, unfortunately, <laughs> thank you, sir. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they begin piling up. And at the end of the day, you're eight hours behind. You need another day. And I just got so worn out looking at actresses. I had to take a walk around the block from wherever William Morris was, I don't remember, in New York. And I wandered into this little cinema on 60-something Street off of Madison. And there was this little French actress in the movie. Uh, and I've forgotten the movie, even. What? Violette. Violette uh, by Claude Chabrol. Thank yeah. you. Uh, and I came back, and I said, Joanne, I think I found the actress. And, uh, and from there, the battle began. Yeah. <laughs> and so. I... I, I I know you don't want to be too analytical, but I'll just throw a couple of more questions at you. If you don't want to go there, you'll just let me know. But one of the few people who seems to have actually been recognized for their work at, at the time of the film was the production designer, uh, Tambi uh, Larson, because well, he was nominated for an Oscar. One thing that was yeah, very, very nice is, is that Tambi and his set decorator were both nominated for Heaven's Gate. And that means a lot to them, uh, those craftsmen, because they feel the Oscar is almost beside the point because everybody votes on it, whereas uh, when the nomination process is only from the people who do the work they do. So they were very, very pleased with that. And I don't think anybody that I know of now or then could have done the job that they did. Can you talk a little bit about working with them to create this world that we see in the film? And oh, sure. Yeah. I remember the very first, in fact, Joanne mentioned something to me about it the other night. Uh, she had gotten this beautiful letter from Tambi, which she'd forgotten she had, and she read it to me. And I said, you know what my first sight of Tambi was on location? She said, what? Well, you know the where the town is and the mountain behind it and the church at one end. Well, when we got there, all there was, there was obviously no town. It was just it's, it's national park. You can't even touch the ground. In fact, that whole town is built on a three-foot platform off the ground so it wouldn't harm any plants underneath. And uh, 
it was the middle of the winter. We had to fly in by helicopter. And Tamby's is jolly Danish Santa Claus. And he had on this wonderful Santa Claus hat, you know, with a little red pom-pom on the top. And um, so the pilot touched down in what we thought was the hard crust of, of snow. And there were a lot of little pine trees. Except it turned out that all the little pine trees weren't little pine trees. They were the tips <laughs> of very, very tall pine trees. And Tamby jumped out of the chopper, and he disappeared. <laughs> All I could see was a pom-pom <laughs> dancing in the snow. He said, when he finally came up, he said, this is never going to work. <laughs> but he made it work, and he made it work absolutely beautifully. And the park was restored to its pristine state. And uh, I was glad we were able to get permission. Mm. And uh, working with him was also just a pure pleasure. Uh, he was so dedicated. And as Chris says, everybody was, even, even the extras. Mm. And I hate to call them extras, because they were more than that. There were more extras than I've ever seen. Right. <laughs> They were, they were all local people mostly, and uh, they had regular jobs and sawmills and factories and local places. And uh, many of them gave up their jobs to stay on the movie. And uh, that was an incredible compliment. And that's why you see such a consistency that somehow this thing Took us all, took us all over, and uh, why I don't know, but it did. It had some sort of magic spell about it, and uh, and that's partly what made the crash in New York so devastating, is because there was so much honest, hard effort on everybody's part. Uh, Hell, we even had a, one of the drivers in the battle uh, drove chariot in Ben-Hur. <laughs> he's an old guy with white hair. You see him tooling around there just like he's in the Roman Colosseum. <laughs> and uh, so um, there were so many memorable moments, it's hard to re recall them all now. And... Uh, I'm just so damn happy Chris could be here to hear the applause. <laughs> I, I can't tell you. It meant so much to me, uh, means so much to me, for him to hear response to his unbelievable dedication and hard work. Uh, it's still... You know, while I was working on it, now, of course, I worked on it digitally. So I could do a lot of things that I couldn't do even when I first made the movie because it was before the digital revolution. So working on the picture after the digital revolution was really exciting because in digital, you could do so many more things that you can't do uh, without it. And uh, you can change colors. You can 
there's no end to what you can do. And um, just to see it like this all in one piece, a New York audience, a real audience, um, takes my breath away. I, I don't know what else I could, I could say. It is based on a true episode. Yeah. The president was Harrison, mm -hmm. uh, Benjamin Harrison. And, uh, and most of the communiques that are read by the actors during certain scenes, including n the note that uh, Ella finds and Nate Champion, yeah. those are the real notes and the real communiques. You know, they're not made up for the sake of the movie. The actual wording, the letter from the governor, the backing of the president of the U.S. People had gotten together and convinced Harrison that there was a state of anarchy in Johnson County. And that was the, and the, the most amazing thing of all is in the Wyoming Historical Society, there's a gazillion pictures of these mercenaries posing in front of the camera. In those long coats, just dressed exactly the way they are in the movie, kneeling one row, kneeling with their rifles, and the other one standing with their rifles, and there they are. You're forgetting your microphone. Yeah. Well, I'm a bad actor, I am. <laughs> well, I think there is one more thing you could tell us, Michael, which is that with the reception here tonight and in Venice. And, and the very good press that's, that's come out of, over the last couple of weeks about the restoration. I'm wondering if you, you may feel that you're at a place now where we might see in the not too distant future a new Michael Cimino film because the world is certainly overdue for one. Thank you. Well, it's you, Joanne. It won't be for lack of trying. <laughs> well, I want to I wanna thank everyone at, uh, at MGM Park Circus and the Criterion Collection who helped to make tonight possible, and most of all, Chris Christopherson and Michael yeah. Cimino for being here with us. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.